0: Chapter 15. So Genesis 15, we looked at the first six verses last week. Um, there is a chance we will return to this chapter next week, uh, assuming we, we get through it exegetically this week, because uh, there's a lot. There's a lot of things that this chapter introduces, as, as I think we'll see this evening. But but another theme that I think uh, you, you may find fascinating. We'll see. If not, we'll go on in and talk about uh, Hagar. Uh, Genesis 15. Let's read verses seven. 21. Uh, Moses writes, And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. He brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. He did not cut the birds in half, and when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down, and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and flaming torch passed between these pieces. On the day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Okay, well, This is a bizarre passage. If you really caught what was going on, it's a bizarre passage. Uh, And uh, bizarre passages are fun, right? Uh, I find them fun, even if you can't answer all the riddles and whatnot. I was listening to a podcast recently, it's the Bible Project podcast, which I highly recommend. Uh, They were talking about Melchizedek. They had a guy who wrote his dissertation on Melchizedek on, right? And he said early on, he goes, just to be clear, I still don't know who Melchizedek is. Right. And he, he, he really brought a lot to, to the podcast and in the discussion. But at the end of the day, he's like, I, I, there's just so many mysteries around um, uh, Melchizedek there. And that's true of, of, of all the mysteries of Scripture. Well, let's just, just work our way through here. Um, Remember that, that Abraham is having a bit of a crisis, right? He's, 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 he's a delivered lot, right? He, he, and and he, he fought that big battle, sort of like Gideon. You know, he had 300, 318 men, I think it was. And now he realizes uh, retaliation is a very real threat. And uh, if something were to happen to him, uh, what's going to happen to all of his possessions, land, and everything is it's, it's not going to go to a son that God promised him. It's going to go to one of his chief servants, right? And that that would bring great shame upon a nobleman like Abraham. So he and God are having this conversation. Verse 1 opens up in, in, that Abraham is a type of prophet, so we get in Revelation here. We talked about that in the uh, prediction that God gives Abraham about his descendants uh, 400 years later, and all that sort of stuff. So, so we see a, a not a crisis of faith, but a moment where Abraham is needing some answers. He's really struggling with, you've promised this, and yet I see no evidence of of, of this promise. And so notice it starts there in verse 7. He said to him, this is God speaking, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur the Chaldeans to give you this land to to possess. So right away, we need to see that the covenant God uh, gave in chapter 12 is reaffirmed in chapter 15 so you may last week we said that chapter 12 is one of those gigantic chapters in the bible Uh, chapter 15 um, is is similar to it uh, but its main point is to reaffirm what was given in chapter 12 right and it's the same promise uh land and lineage and blessing um but the language here that god uses is the sort of language that would have been familiar to an ancient near eastern culture when a king would sign a treaty or a covenant, they would begin with self-identification. Notice what God says here. Um, he says, I am the Lord. Right? So, so if you re- you, we can read these ancient covenants and treaties signed by uh, ancient or eastern kings, and they would say, I am King right? I, I am uh, King Ramses or... Uh, I can only think of Egyptian, ancient Near Eastern uh, uh, kings. But uh, it, it would say something like that. And God is, is, is using the same sort of language. Now, this isn't the only time God uses this formula. Uh, one of the things you'll see about chapter 15 is there's a lot of formulas introduced here that become prominent later on. Let me give you just, just a few examples. And I do mean a few because I give you about two or three dozen more. Uh, Behold, the Lord stood above it. This is the only other time you'll find this in Genesis and said, I am the Lord the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac, right? And notice here, God is reaffirming to the third generation the promise he made to Abraham. So he makes it to Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and he'll make it to Jacob. He'll make it to later generations. Uh, Exodus 6 is all over Exodus. I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Right. Basically, I'm sure your your dad did this, right? When he had to put his foot down. What is it? From from that Pixar movie, Foot is Down. You know what I'm talking about? Anyone in, inside no, it's the one where they're in, in her head. No one watches Pixar. Any, anyone ever heard of Disney inside out. Inside, out. inside out. It is called Inside, right? Foot is down, right? Um right, and they, every dad's so like i'm talking right because i said so right and it's sort of what god's doing if you read the exodus story one of the things that motivates god to redeem israel is that his name will be glorified among the nations right this is still true today with the story of jesus right? that the nations would 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 glorify god and so god redeemed israel now, they benefit from that, but, but the point was that, that the mighty Egypt at their peak would then be brought low and that the gods of Egypt would, would be uh, destroyed and the God of Israel would be praised. Exodus 20, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Um, um, yeah, we'll, we'll stop there. So, so you have it here, right? I am the Lord your God who has done these things. Now, for most of the Old Testament, it takes us back to the Exodus, Here, God has taken us back to him uh, leading Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans, right? And and so what you have then is is a recounting of that story. God is the one that led and called Abraham out of that pagan era. Remember, Ur is not far from Babel. So we meet Abraham's genealogy at the end of chapter 11, immediately following the story of Babel. So Abraham is not... A righteous man in the middle of a pagan world. He's a pagan man in the middle of a pagan world. And God called him out of that. God redeemed him out of uh, his uh, polygamous idolatry. So I am the one who, who I promised you land and all that sort of stuff. You are standing on land that I will give to you and your descendants. Verse 8, uh, he said, Oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Right. That's, that's, that's a good question. Right. OK, God, you've promised me these things. How do I know it's going to come true? Right. Remember, this is the language of a covenant. OK, you promised this. Uh, but, but how do I know you're, you're, you're going to live up to your end of the bargain? Right. That's the question he's asking. By the way, notice the language he says here, O oh Lord God. Does anyone have sovereign God there? Uh, what trans- is that NIV? Yeah. Uh, that's a perfectly fine translation uh, of this. But it's actually what we saw last week. The word Lord is lowercase, the word God is uppercase. Isn't your Bibles like that? Now, we saw this last week. You remember that, that Abraham was having, a, he was struggling with doubts. But in, in the middle of those doubts, he, he, he didn't speak evil of God. He, he didn't speak down to God, but he, he uses the language of respect and all and sovereignty. So, so sovereign God is perfectly fine, uh, but the language is, O Adonai Yahweh, Lord, Lord, if, if you want to, to be very literal, if you translate the word Yahweh, Lord. Of course, Yahweh really means to be, I am, to exist. It's, it's... it's yeah, yeah, it's, it's not... It comes from the from the word to be, right, which is why we translated I am right in in, in the Exodus story, the burning bush. Uh, who sh- who should I say sent me? I am sent you. Yah sent me sent you. Yahweh sent you. So, so that's the divine name. So what you have then is Sovereign Adonai Yahweh. It is a very high uh, sort of uh, title to, to give God. Now, this is the second time uh, Abraham has, has used this. The, the first was early on in chapter 15. Uh, but he's not the last to use this phrase. This is a common phrase. In fact, um, we sing this, right? Oh Lord our God. Uh, Isn't that how great, great thou art? Right? This is where it comes from. Uh, so let me give you examples. Genesis twenty four twelve. Oh, Lord God of my master, Abraham. Right. Deuteronomy 3. Oh, Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant, your greatness and, and, and your mighty hand. Deuteronomy 9. And I prayed to, to the Lord. Oh, Lord God, do not destroy your people and, and, and your heritage. Judges 6. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, alas, oh, Lord God. By the way, notice there. He is speaking to the angel of the Lord this title. So when it comes to figuring out who is this mysterious figure, the angel of the Lord, you've got to deal with a passage like this. I think it's a pre-incarnate Jesus. And that's, that's been a pre-traditional uh, uh, conclusion. But a passage like this is you have divinity given to a being that's called an angel, but the angel does not deny the title. The angels in Revelation don't allow John to worship them. You know, get up. I'm not the one you need to worship, right? Uh, but the Angel of the Lord doesn't do that; receives it. Um, and also the burning bush, Angel of the Lord. Uh, the place you're, you're standing is holy ground. It's, it's interesting. The Angel. Maybe one day we can look at that some some depth. Uh, Judges 16. And Samson called to the Lord and said, "Oh Lord God, please remember me and strengthen me only this once, right? This is the the end where he's he's going to uh, push on, on on the pillars there. But you see this. And I can give you a dozen other examples. Uh, it, 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 is, it is addressing directly God In his essence, his sovereignty And his lordship So, so Abraham is saying That the things you promise me I cannot deliver for myself now, Abraham may be able to Deliver a lot But he's not going to be able to kick all the Canaanites out of the land Right I mean he can only do so much with 300 guys right? Um Likewise He cannot produce a son That's the whole point of the story and all the details of the story is, Abraham and Sarah cannot do this thing. If they do this thing, it's clearly a work of God. So in confessing, oh Lord God, how do I know these things are gonna happen? He is confessing in that prayer, I can't do this. By the way, that's what Samson is saying here. Oh Lord God, will you help me just this once? Because I can't do it. I don't have the strength, I don't have the sight. But if, but if, if I can do this thing, everyone will know it's you. This is what we're getting from from this this title uh, and phrase that we're getting. And notice in verses 9 to 11, God responds by giving Abraham very clear but very bizarre instructions. They're bizarre to you and me, not bizarre to Abraham and, and those of his time. He's got to do two things. Number one, you see there in verse nine, needs to gather a three-year-old heifer, a female goat, ram, turtle dove, and pigeon. My understanding is they all have to be three years old except for the birds, okay? Now, these animals at this age are fully grown and ritually mature. The thoroughbreds of Kentucky Derby, are they three-year-olds? Okay, I thought so, right? And the oaks are two-year-olds? No, they're, they're three too. Okay, I was thinking they were 2 I'm a soccer guy. That's what it is. Okay. Thank you. I'm a soccer guy. So I'm a communist. So, um, so, but same thing with, with the, the, the thoroughbreds, right? Three year olds is, 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 is the age you're looking for fully grown, mature, all that sort of stuff. Now, each of these animals, I started to research this and it's overwhelming. Each of these animals show up in the Jewish sacrificial system. And you probably know enough of the Bible. You've seen these animals. Uh, the, the heifers are, are, are used, obviously. Turtle doves uh, is, is what Mary and Joseph offer uh, when they present Jesus for his circumcision. Um, and uh, obviously the goats, uh, the rams, right? The ram will show up in Genesis 22 when Abraham seek, is, is going to sacrifice Isaac. Um, and you remember that Isaac asked, where's the lamb? God doesn't provide a lamb. Uh, he, he provides a ram instead. Uh, we'll talk about that. Uh, we already have, actually. I think it was our first Easter here. So so, th- so you, you got to gather these animals together. And in this sense, I couldn't help but think he's almost like a Noah, isn't he? You've you got to gather these animals at this age, right? Uh, I don't think we should read that into it, but it just kind of stuck out to me. The other thing he, he is to do, so you those with a, a, a soft stomach, right? Uh, I'm going to warn you, okay? He is to take each of these animals, except for the birds, sever them in half, and then put each half of a carcass on a pole and line them up where basically you have an aisle with rotting carcasses on both sides. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> yeah. By the way, this, this, if, if, if you ever study ancient history, this sort of imagery is everywhere. Uh, whenever Spartacus and the slaves revolted against Rome, you remember what the Romans did and put it down, crucified them for miles Going down uh, the road. So here you are. I got to go to Walmart's on the west side. That is miles away. You go out your door, you go out on on 60, and you're just walking. You think, there's a dying body, there's a rotting body. That guy's been dead for a while, that guy's been hanging for a while, and you're in it for miles. Miles and miles, and and you the stench of of rotting flesh and and, and vultures and and other animals, right? Now, why would Rome do this? It sent a clear message. Don't mess with us. What what has happened to these cats is what's going to happen to you. Jesus gets this, right? The only reason Jesus is taken down from the cross is because of the Jewish Sabbath uh, uh, celebration. I mean... You can kill people unjustly on, on Friday, but you can't leave them hanging there on Saturday. That would be wrong. Right? That's the thinking. It's sort of like a, a, I was reading in a, in a book, book recently where the way they used to. This is a Mighty Python skit, too. So it's based on history. There you go, Mark, a Mighty Python reference. The way you tell someone is a witch, what do you do? You throw them into the water. If they sink, they're not a witch. But they die, right? Oops. So you, you got to ask, which is more important, to lose a valuable member of our society or to let them just be a witch, right? I mean, it doesn't make any sense, but hey, you know, this is, this is the way, way, way we're going to roll. So, so you, you've got these, these carcasses here. Now, uh, this is not unique to the Bible. I didn't know this before. There is a reference to something like this in the book of Jeremiah. And I think it's, it's worth looking at. Uh, you recently repented and did what was right in my eyes, God is saying. And you made a covenant before me in the house that is called by my name. Now, notice uh, here the language of covenant. This imagery, this act is centered on the issue of, 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 a, of a covenant. Okay? So so you just don't randomly say, hey, honey, I got to go out and just post a bunch of random animals up, up on a pole. right?" And, you know, to decorate the front yard. I know you want the uh, water heater out there, but no, I want these rotting carcasses. No, no, that, that's not why he's doing it. It is associated with covenant. Um, verse 16, but then you turned around profane my name when each of you took back his male and female slaves, whom you had set free according to their desires, and you brought them into sub- sub- subjection to be your slaves. Now, let me just pause there and say, I didn't know God condemned slavery in the Bible. Glad you woke. Yeah, yeah. Right, but you do hear this, right? The Bible supports slavery. Yeah, except for that part God got mad at his people for, people, for, for that the slaves they, re, they, they liberated, they then re-enslaved. I mean, what do you do with passages like this? I'm not saying it's always easy in the Bible. I, I think there's, there's some clear conclusions you can make what the Bible says. And we did a whole series on Philemon, we, we've looked at it uh, in some detail. But, but I think passages like this, you've got to deal with it. Right. So God is condemning them for enslaving people. Verse 17, therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me by proclaiming liberty, everyone to his brother and to his neighbor. By the way, notice the, the, the liberties in connected to slaves. Uh, Behold, I proclaim to you liberty to the sword, to pestilence and to famine, declares the Lord. Now, notice that's not liberty, is it? Nor are you proclaiming liberty and having slaves is a proclamation of liberty. If only I could think of a nation that has struggled with something like that. Every man is equal, you get to keep your slaves. Right? God is saying, oh, if that's liberty, here is pestilence and plague, right? And famine, right? It doesn't make sense. Nor does slavery while claiming liberty. I will throw you a horror to the kingdoms of the earth. Did I not put the rest of it up here? Well, let let me read the rest of it. and the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and pass between its parts. And then it applies it to, to various people. And that's good enough. Now, notice what he said there is, is we entered a covenant. And, and part of this covenant, in this case, has to do with slavery. And he said, because you pass through the severed carcasses and haven't lived up to your end of the bargain, judgment is upon you. So what this act is, it's tied to a covenant where both parties would walk through saying, if I don't live up to my end of the bargain, what what happened to these animals, you can do to me. Or, which you, or also what you're communicating is, I will fulfill my end of the, of, of, of the agreement until it kills me. And if it doesn't kill me, You can kill me. Now, let me just pause there for a minute. Do you see why Christians have always referred to marriage as a covenant? It's not a certificate. When marriage is a certificate, there's nothing really binding the two souls. But when we say covenant, what we're saying is, literally, till death do us part. If I break this covenant. Let it be on these grounds, my death. Right? So, so, so this is why the Bible lifts marriage covenant very, very high. Because both spouses are now walking through, making a promise to each other to love each other until the end. And not give up until they achieve those promises. So this, 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 this ceremony invokes a curse, um, now, let, let me add just one other detail, right? So, so, so Abraham's going to put these on, on poles. I mean, can, can you just imagine having to explain this to people in your household? Anyways, he, he sets these up. Notice here that these animals are serving as a type, just a type of substitute and as stand-ins because the agreement is these animals die so that I don't have to. Right? I'm going to keep my end in, of in, in the bargain, but something must die. Right, And so, so they're, they're, they're serving as a type of substitute, which is why the Jewish system includes all of these animals for sin offering and, and whatnot, right? Now, Abraham set all this up in place. And what God does in verse 12 is he lets Abraham take a nap. Now, I, I, I don't know much about cutting up carcasses and putting them on poles, but that sounds like that is exhausting work. I mean, I don't know. Um, and he does it without modern farm machinery, okay? <laughs> you know, he, you know, come on, boys, we've we got to put this up here. Um, I imagine that that is quite um, exhausting. But what does your Bible say there in, I, I believe it's verse, verse 12? Does it say that Abraham went into a deep sleep? Is that what everyone says? A deep sleep? Yeah, yeah. This is, this, is, this is a significant phrase. The word here is not just sleep. This is why our English translations add the adjective. He's not just sleeping, you know, because he got COVID or something. Because uh, I remember when I had COVID, even before I knew I had COVID, I would do like one thing, sleep for three hours, right? Now, that's a deep sleep. This is a very, very, very deep sleep. All right? This is the sort of thing where... Where you go into in, the surgeon, puts you to sleep, you wake up 10 days later, right? And you're missing something, right? I told you all this story. When Amanda had a, had a small procedure a few years ago. And uh, when she woke up, I was there. I said, honey, I, I, I hate to be the one to tell you this, but they had to take the leg. Right? And she, I was hoping that the drugs were still working in her system. You know, there would be like a, 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 you know, five seconds of, of, of panic. There was not to, to my... Disappointment. Nevertheless, you know, it's that sort of thing, right? You know, very, very deep, deep sleep. Well, that term is used throughout the Bible. It's a very important word, especially in the book of Genesis, but but even beyond. Uh, Mark mentions Adam. Now, notice, God puts Adam to sleep. And he wakes up, and what does he find? Eve. Yeah. A girl, right? You guys get that in the back? A girl, right? Yeah, I, I know. No, basically what it is, is, is God got on, you know, com, entered information on the dating site for Adam, no last name, and, um, and uh, woke up, and she, she, she hit, yes, I'm interested. She, she had, you know, couldn't, couldn't turn off all the other guys, so, well, I get, you know, Adam's, Adam's profile said, if I were the only guy in the world, would you date me? And she said yes, you know, and she anticipated this would be reality, you know. So anyways, um, so he sleeps. He goes into this deep sleep and he wakes up. What is he? Yes, he gets Eve, of course. But what he gets is the covenant of marriage. This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. You shall be woman for, for you came came from man. So the first love poem comes from Adam. It's the first words to, to his new bride. Um, the second time we get this is here in Genesis 15. God puts Abram to sleep. And when he wakes up, a covenant has been signed. A very significant covenant has been signed. We see this in other places. Um, uh, 1 Samuel 26. This is when David sneaks into... We looked at this last year. It's the end of 1 Samuel. and, And David is basically taunting Saul. Uh, and you remember, he sneaks in to, to his bedchamber. He took like a cup and a javelin or something like that, or was a bowl. He took, took something weird, but he took a javelin, right? And, and, he, and he stands from a distance and says, Hey, everybody, does this look like your king's javelin? You know, it's like, how did I get it? I'll tell you how I got it, is I snuck in, right? Imagine what I could have done, right? And remember, that's like the second time David had an opportunity to take Saul's life, but he didn't. Yeah, and and it says there that, that he, the reason he was able to. I mean, think about it. If someone comes walking into your bedroom. I don't care how deep a sleeper you are, you're probably going to stir. But God put Saul into a deep sleep. Now, what's happening in the story? We're getting a transition from Saul's reign to David's reign. Because I believe it's the next chapter or two where Saul is going to die, and David. Uh, as we'll see, Lord willing, later this year, David starts a process, first becoming king of Judah and so on. And then there's this in Isaiah. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep. Now notice now, this is judgment. And has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. So this word, which we translate deep sleep, which is perfectly adequate, um, is, it doesn't just mean you took a, a long nap. It's a supernatural intervention from God. God has done this thing. Now, in the Genesis account, the reason God does this is to show that this is a covenant that God enters into, but is not. But the other person does not. That is to say that in this covenant, the other person cannot fulfill the covenant. Think about it. Adam goes to sleep. He wakes up and there is Eve. Can Adam create for himself a bride? No. In the story, he's alone and he can't fix it. No matter how much he works, no matter how many animals he names and gets close to, he can't fix what is really ailing him. God must do it for him. So too, we see the same thing happening here with Abraham notice also the ESV describes it why is this sleep a dreadful and great darkness is that is that what your Bible says something like that this is the language and these terms are often used together to indicate divine presence. So it makes sense. We have a supernatural sleep with imagery that associates with the presence of God. So let me give you some examples here. Exodus 15, terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as stones to your people or pass by to the people pass by whom. So terror and dread. Uh, Deuteronomy 32, outdoors the sword shall bereave and indoors terror for young men and women alike. Right, you see it there, bereave in terror. Uh, he made darkness, his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds, dark with, with, with the water. Um, now, such an experience of this darkness and dreadfulness is often associated with divine revelation, uh, where one is ready to receive a, a, a divine word. A good example of this is Job. I can, I, there's actually two examples of this in the book of Job. Now, word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received the whisper of it amid thoughts from visions of the night. When deep sleep, ah, does that sound familiar, falls on men? Dread came upon me and trembling, which made all my bones shake. So you see the association with sleep and dread and darkness, right? And I'll notice he, a spirit glided past my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice. And that's when we get the revelation from God. So you see sleep associated with God's presence of darkness and dreadfulness. Well, what do we get here? We get deep sleep as a supernatural sleep from God and associated with divine presence of dreadfulness and and darkness. And so what God does is he gives Abram a vision, a prophecy of what's going to happen that is quite dreadful and dark. Your descendants will be enslaved. Now remember the context. Abraham is asking, How much longer am I going to have to wait for you to fulfill these promises? When will you fulfill them? What's God's answer? 400 years. How many of you all would like to have that answer from God? God, I, I've been praying for this one thing. When will you fulfill it? Four centuries. But God, I'll be dead. Yeah, that's the point. Yeah, Danny. Well, you can see the importance of this covenant right here. This is an unconditional covenant to mm-hmm. the degree. Mm-hmm. And, and over in Israel, right now, that, that land is theirs. Yeah. And no man can do anything to change it. It's right. All God and he said it was theirs, and, and that's the end of it. And we take now, there again. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's a Jewish reading of this. And it, so in the ancient world, you could not separate the God or gods you worship from the land you live on. Right? We struggle with this, not just as Americans, because almost all of us didn't grow up here. <laughs> it's one of the things I, I do like about Frankfurt. Uh, whereas growing up in Owen County, if you live there, it's because you grew up there. No one moves to Owen County for a job, okay, right? You live there because you grew up there. The jobs are outside the county, unfortunately. But here in Frankfurt, a lot of people come in. Right? And so we don't associate uh, land with home oftentimes. Right? In the ancient world, land was associated with, with divinity. So when the Israelites come into Canaan and they whoop everyone, what, what's, what's the language they use? The God of Israel is mightier than the gods of, of the Canaanites. Right? And then there's the Exodus story. I am the Lord. The God of Israel is mightier than the gods of Egypt. Right, so this covenant language is is central to uh, the Jewish experience. Right, so again, how would you like? You got to wait four hundred years for this. I don't now. Now, read that as an American, we are the most impatient people in all the world. Most impatient people. I was thinking this. I was at WalMarts today and uh, getting some some groceries, and whatnot, and I went through self checkout. I am convinced that if you do self-checkout, it is slower than if you waited in line and, and, and the people who do this for a living did it for you. Imagine. Yeah. <laughs> but why do we love self-checkout? It gives us the illusion it's faster. Not yeah. And we're controlling it, right? Yeah, yeah. I can look at every number that comes up, make sure it's right. Because <laughs> what they do at Kroger, drives me crazy, is not only do you... Well, so everything is overpriced when you put it in there. And then you, you have to put in your number... And then you have to hit pay before that number drops down. You know, if if, if the people who, who who make sure you're not stealing or whatever, there, I bet they get so tired. It's like, ma'am, ma'am, you're supposed to be ten for a dollar each, and they're ringing up as four forty-five. And because I've done this, And they go, pay. <laughs> oh, that's that's the best part of Kroger, isn't it? That's why you shop at Kroger, right? And that's it, right? We are impatient people. Here's God saying four hundred years. Imagine if God said four years. How would you respond? Abraham's given 400. But notice, notice the language here. Verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners and they will be slaves. So that's the dreadful, dark vision. But that word is important in the story of Genesis. Does that word offspring stick out to you? It should. Because it's all over Genesis. If we had time, we would trace it. All the way from chapter 1, right? That, 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 that you would get um, every plant according to its seed. Every cattle according to its seed. Every sea monster according to its seed. Right? And then we get this in Genesis 3.15. I will put hostility or enmity. Enmity is where we need to bring back. Between you and the woman. So the serpent and the woman. One of the most important verses in all the Bible. Between your offspring... And her offspring, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So this is the hope of the Bible. What we're looking for is seed offspring. Again, we've looked at all this. Remember, what did Eve say when she gave birth to Cain? Behold, I have begotten a man. Right. No mother ever says that. Right. I mean, one did apparently. Um, but that's what she said. What was she, what was she concluding? I have, I have begotten, I have given birth to the one who will crush the head of that serpent. You remember, they're just outside the garden. Just outside the garden. And, and, and she believes Cain is, 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 is the promised seed. But what happens? Cain is actually the seed of the serpents. Abel is the righteous son. What happens is, is Cain crushes Abel. And you remember that that then they have a third child named Seth. You remember what they say there? This one will replace Abel, He will give us life. And there we get the genealogies: good seed versus bad seed. And what happens in Genesis 6, however you may read some, some of the Nephilim language, is what you get, is a combination of that, and there is no righteousness. It looks like it is the bad seeds winning, the seed of the serpent. But then God found grace in the eyes of Noah. Oh, good seed. Good seed. But what happens is God wipes everyone out. Noah gets off the boat. What's the first thing he does? He becomes an Adam. He goes to the fruit of a tree and he gets drunk. Nakedness is involved as his judgment. And what does he do? He curses not his seed, but his grand seed. The descendants of Ham are now cursed. Cana is cursed. So now we've got the same story plot. What are we about to run into starting in chapter 16? Ishmael versus Isaac. Is that an issue today? Yes, the Arabs versus versus the Jewish race right now. This is the pattern throughout throughout the Bible. Right? And and we've looked at this here. It's the same word here. So you will be given a seed. And so what we're looking for here is Isaac must be the promised one. But guess what the story is? Abraham is a failure because he's going to fail in the next chapter. Guess what happens to Isaac? All this promise is in Isaac. Guess what? He's a failure. The language will be given to Jacob. Guess what? Jacob is a failure. Until we come to a seed born of a virgin. Because notice here, her seed women don't produce. How can she have seed? Unless she conceives as a virgin. It's a failed reference to the virgin birth of Christ, but I think it's there. This is the hope of a seed. We we have got to move on. Um, So... Um, they will be sojourners and slaves. Verse 14 mentions possessions that, that, that they will take out of the land of slavery. We know it's Egypt. They will take great possessions with them. I, I think I may be reading into it. I think that connects to chapter 14. Remember in chapter 14, Abraham didn't want possessions. He wanted a nephew. And you remember he, he gave 10% of the loot to Melchizedek and the rest went to the other Canaanite kings. Why? Because God is promising him here that in 400 years, you will receive a greater blessing. You will have greater possessions. Now, they do receive possessions out of Egypt, don't they? Goad. You remember what they do with it? They turn into an idol. However, the real possessions isn't Egyptian goat, though that may be part of it. It's really the land. It's the land of promise flowing with milk and honey. It's Edenic language. Also, remember that Melchizedek, he blessed Abraham with possessions. You remember what it was? It was bread and wine. If only I could think of a place in the Bible where bread and wine are associated with covenants. If you, if you find it, um, let me know. And then notice, verse. 15, I want to spend some, some time on, on verse 15 here. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good age. Now, that's a good prophecy, right? I mean, what if you knew, eh, you're going to die a ripe old age. You'll eventually just die. You'll be buried. You're not going to be a slave like your descendants. I mean, that, that, that's not good. But for you, you'd be all right. Now, that language, you will be buried with your fathers. What does that mean? You Lord of the Rings fans, you know what this means. Remember, King Theoden is the last of his line. His son dies. That's how we're introduced to King Theoden. You remember what he says? How tragic is it that I would be the last of my line and that I would be buried among my fathers? What does he mean? He's going to be buried in the same cemetery. Is that, is that what this text means? You're gonna be buried in the same cemetery as your father. No. Why? Where is Abraham's father? He's in in Haran. Haran. He's in the land of Canaan? What can't mean that? Here's why this is important. There is a a, a, a ongoing, it's been going on for centuries, going all the way back to the time of Jesus and even before. Does the old testament teach an afterlife? heaven, hell, whatever, whatever it might be. Does the Old Testament teach it? I think it very clearly does. In fact, if, if you don't believe that this is a big issue, um, this, this does show up in the New Testament. Let me just briefly show you. This language here in Genesis 15 is used elsewhere. Let me lie with my fathers. I believe this is, yeah, this is Jacob. Um, now, how can he, what does that mean if he's in Egypt, but his fathers are buried in Israel, right? He's going to die while they're still in Egypt. But he's going to go lie with his fathers. Well, he's not literally lying with his fathers; it's dead carcasses. It's 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 got to be something more than that. Deuteronomy, the Lord said to Moses, "Behold, you're about to lie down with your fathers." No, no, he's not. Moses is in some mysterious place at a mountain. His fathers are in Egypt, dead, maybe. You know, so it's got to be. It's got to be more than just going to be buried in the same same cemetery. Um, so, um. So, this is an issue that, that, that we see in, in the, in, in the uh, uh, New Testament. Um, yeah, Samuel, uh, Samuel gave Saul the same thing. All right, so New Testament, remember, we get this. The same, the same day Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection. Sadducees believed only in the first five books of the Old Testament, they didn't believe in angels or demons. Uh, they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe, believe in a lot of things. So a lot of people will compare them to the liberals and Pharisees, the conservatives. It's a bit oversimplified, but and remember, Paul does this, right? He says, hey, guys, the reason I'm arrested is because uh, I'm a Pharisee and son of a Pharisee, and I believe in the resurrection. Remember what they do? Oh, no, no, no this is wrong, you know. So basically what you got are Democrats or Republicans. Someone said something about tax reform and government spending, and Paul could just sneak out of there. like this. You know, joke's on them. That's basically what he does, right? Which are be- better, pickup trucks or a hybrid car? And then they just go, go right at, at, at each other. Well, this, this is a big issue. Yeah, there are plenty of passages that indicate there is an afterlife. Um, let, me, let me go to Jesus here, because um, it's, it's in the same passage that we just read. Remember what Jesus says. Doesn't the Bible say to, to Moses at the burning bush, God himself say, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob. Now notice, God did not say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So I am. It's present tense. They chilling, right? So it's not weird that in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, there is Abraham existing in the afterlife with, with, with Lazarus. This makes sense. Uh, Daniel 12, 2, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and to everlasting contempt. I think it very clear. I understand people's beef with Daniel, but I believe it's inspired, so I think it works just fine. Isaiah 26, your dead shall live, not as zombies, right? Their bodies shall rise, not as Dracula. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. Now, notice there, you can't awake and sing for joy if you are dead, all right? For your due is a due of light, and the earth will give birth to the day. Galatians five twenty four. Um, this is Genesis. Sorry for the typo. Um, Enoch walked with God, and he was no more because God took him away. This is here. We're looking at the first five books of, of this example of, of the Pentateuch. Where did he go if there's no resurrection? <laughs> Where did he go? God took him. Where? <laughs> right? I mean, what a weird verse. Same thing with Elijah, right? Uh, we, we we can do do him. Job 19, I know, I, I like to use this at funerals and burials. I know my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, I'll decay. Then in my flesh I shall see God. Notice that, that there will be decay of the flesh. To dust I shall return, but I will see my Redeemer in the flesh. That is resurrection, a bodily resurrection proclaimed by Job. A lot of debated when Job's written and by who? Uh, you've probably heard it's probably an early book. I'm leaning towards probably a, a later book, um, but but nevertheless, it's it's, it's still there. Psalm 16: Therefore my heart is glad, my tongue rejoices, my body also will rest secure, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your holy one see decay. You show me the path to life. This is quoted in in the New Testament. Psalm 17: As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied, beholding your likeness. Clearly, I think this is resurrection. But then you got to do, what does the phrase gathered to his people mean? Very similar to align with, with, with your father. For example, Genesis 25, Abraham breathed his last and died, spoiler alert, and in the good old age, an old man full of years, and was gathered to his people. Was Abraham gathered to his people? No, because there was no people. That's the point of the story. you got to wait 400 years, Abe. Eh? So, how does he gather to his people if his people still ain't, ain't arrived yet? Jacob finished commanding his sons. He drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and gathered to his people. Not in Egypt he didn't. Deuteronomy 32:50. And die on the mountain which you go up and be gathered to your people as Aaron your brother died in Mount Hor. So, you have Aaron on, on one mountain, Moses on the other, and they're both gathered to their people who are entering the promised land. They're not gathering to their people unless to gather with people means something else. This is an after afterlife. Well, verse 16, they shall come back here to the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Um, they do fight. It's the Amalekites. I will always do that. Amalekites, Amorites. Um, I think Amorites here is a stand-in for the Canaanites. Notice here, they haven't stored up enough in God's reckoning for his wrath to come down, but they will. The time will come. This is the same message God will give Habakkuk. Habakkuk is a prophet, one of my favorite minor prophets, where he says, God, I know we're evil, but we're not as bad as the Babylonians. Why are you using them as instruments of judgments? What does God say? Seventy years. Judgment will fall upon this wicked people in my time, in due course. Same thing he is saying here. All right, let's finish, finish out here. Um, Seventeen, Darkness, fire, flame are common pictures of God's presence. We get this in the Exodus. Um, so I, I, I got verses, but we can just skip it. Um, verse 17, when the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot flame. So this is God's divine presence. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your offspring, I give. This land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, river Ephraim, on so forth. These are boundaries that were realized during the United Kingdom. You can read about it in First Kings. Um, notice there are ten nations uh, there, and so you have. Um, uh, oh, these t- same ten nations are repeated ten times in the Bible. That may be important. Because 10 is a no, no, another number of completeness. Number 10 shows up all the time in creation story, as does 7. Of course, 7 does. Notice verse 18, God made a covenant. That is literally cut a covenant. Can you guess where the phrase cut a covenant came from? They cut the carcasses in half. God literally cut a covenant. However, here's the whole point of this story, then, then we'll be done. You're probably wore out, and I, I am too. The point of the story is who walks through the carcasses? It's only God. That's the main point of the story. Only God walks through the carcasses. What is Abe doing? He's he's in a deep, supernatural sleep. So what is God communicating to Abe? Remember, the question is, how do I know? How do I know that that I will have a a line and a lineage and land? How do I know these things? What does God do? He says, okay, in your culture, this is a common way of, of, of doing covenants. And what happens is both parties walk through. But in this case, only God walked through it. What is God saying? He's saying, if I do not fulfill my end of the bargain, that what happened to these animals happened to me. But here's the thing. God did fulfill his end of the bargain. But the Jewish people didn't. I get that Abraham didn't walk through it. But a covenant is signed. So what does God do? Does he destroy his people? No. The promise is that let what happened to these carcasses happen to me. And on behalf of the the sons of Abraham, Jew and Gentile, God himself steps down and becomes one of those severed animals. These animals are put up on a pole. Christ is hanging from a cross. To save his people who would betray him. To redeem souls, not of this fold. He hangs upon the earth. He is lifted up, he'll tell Nicodemus, fulfilling the promise. And that good stuff? The cross is right there, if we can just see it. It's so good. And that is how we know God keeps his promises, despite our failure. is that good? Well, anything I'm missing? So much here. All right. We'll get out on time if we pray in ten seconds. Let's go ahead and close out in prayer. Let's stand up, stand up and pray.